Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. On this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences and I revisit the safety and performance 510K that uh, FDA released uh, a little over a year ago. And we dive into some of the details and explore how this might be a potential pathway for you to consider. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And you know, there's a lot of things that are happening in the regulatory side of, of our industry. Even, gosh, back uh, a little bit ago, um, there was this new pro- or a newer program, let's say, from FDA called the, the Safety and Performance 510K. And, you know, you might recall that Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences and I talked about that at that point in time. And we haven't revisited that topic, but there's some news, uh, recent news on the safety and performance-based 510K that uh, I thought it might be good to revisit the topic a little bit. So joining me on this is uh, Mike Drews. Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. So I use the word new, and I guess from a regulatory perspective, this still is a new program and it might be a good place to to start to remind folks what the safety and performance-based 510K is all about and, and maybe highlight a, c- a couple of tips or pointers or or key differentiators from uh, other 510Ks? So, John, that's a great place to start. And as always, thanks for the opportunity to discuss this with you and our audience, because this is a pathway that uh, everybody in our audience should it be should at least be familiar with to, to determine whether it's applicable for their particular device or not. So, first of all, um, the safety and performance-based 510K, or SP510K, as I like to call it, it's just another... 510K. And like the other 510Ks, there's a couple of basic requirements. The first is it only applies to medical devices that are class two or lower, class two or lower. So if you have a device that is a class three device, no 510K, including the safety and performance-based 510K would normally be applicable. And then the second requirement, like all other 510Ks, is we have to show that there's a predicate, another device already on the market here in the United States that is very similar, i.e. substantially equivalent to our device. And when we talk about substantial equivalence, as you know, John, we're talking about both labeling as well as technology. Now, let's dig into that substantial equivalence just a tiny bit further because all 510Ks across the board require showing substantial equivalence to a predicate, but the way we do it for each type of 510K is different. So most of our audience are probably familiar with the most common form of 510K, the traditional 510K. In the traditional 510K or the T510K, we typically show substantial equivalence to another device already on the market. It could be one of our competitors' devices. It could be one of our devices. It doesn't really matter. But we show substantial equivalence to another device already on the market. And about 70 to 75% of 510Ks are traditional 510Ks. Special 510Ks um, typically used when we make a change to an existing device. And we have talked about these topics in other podcasts before. But special 510Ks, 
we still have to show substantial equivalence, but we have to show that our changed or our modified device is substantially equivalent to the previously cleared device. So the substantial equivalence argument is the same, but we're comparing it to the the previous version, if you will. And then finally, we get to the, and by the way, about uh, about 20% of 510Ks are special 510Ks. Finally, we get to the, the topic of today's conversation, and that is the safety and performance-based 510K, which is really nothing more than sort of a, an update of what used to be called the abbreviated 510K. Once again, we still have to show substantial equivalence, but in this particular case, Instead of showing substantial equivalence to another device, like the traditional or the special 510K, we show substantial equivalence to a standard, to a guidance, not a particular device itself. And we can dig into this a little bit more as as the conversation continues. The abbreviated 510K, which has now essentially become the the safety and performance 510K, in the past, has has not been used very often, John, as you probably know, only about 4% of 510Ks were abbreviated 510Ks. And I suspect perhaps, and again, we can talk about this more in our discussion, but if the changes from the abbreviated 510K to the safety and performance 510K seem to be attractive to more companies, then maybe that number will increase, but it hasn't yet. So bottom line, the the safety and performance-based 510K is very similar to all of the 510Ks. We have to show substantial equivalence to something. It's just that the something is different. In the SB 510K, we show substantial equivalence to a standard or a guidance as opposed to an individual device. Mm -hmm. And one last thing that I'll mention about the SB 510K, John, and then you can chime in with your thoughts, is... Just like the abbreviated 510K, the safety and performance-based 510K is limited to what I like to call well-established technologies, well-established technologies or well-established devices. In other words, if you have a device that has been around for a very long time that uses a well-established technology, then there are probably standards uh, that apply to it. On the other hand, if you're working on a quote-unquote new device, and I know, John, as we've talked about before, uh, to, to, to put the words new in 510K in the, in the same <laughs> sentence is a little yeah. bit of an oxymoron. Right. But if we're working on a quote-unquote new 510K, whatever that means, then chances are there are not standards for it, because if there were, how could it be new? And if there are not standards for it, then it would not be applicable to the SP 510K. So... At a high level, John, that's sort of an overview of the safety and performance 510K and sort of how it compares to the other types of 510Ks. Does, does that make sense? It does, yeah. Anything else that's important about the, the new safety and performance-based 510K that's uh, you think yeah, just important? A, just a couple of minor points, John. The SP510K was created about two years ago. It was announced by Scott Gottlieb before he left as commissioner of, of FDA. And as I said, it was basically very closely patterned off the abbreviated 510K. I would say it's substantially equivalent to the abbreviated 510K, to use a regulatory pun, John. And it is limited to, as I said, not just well-understood technologies or well established devices or technologies, but it's limited to certain well-understood devices. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But again, to keep this as simple as I can, there's basically two requirements to the SP510K that are very similar to the other 510Ks. 
the device has to have the same high-level labeling, that is the same indications for use, and the technological characteristics cannot raise additional questions of safety and efficacy uh, compared to the predicate. So that's true for 510Ks across the board. But the difference here with the SP510K is that the new device needs to meet all of the FDA-identified performance criteria, which is in the guidance or the standards that we'll talk about in a okay. moment. And just just a couple of other minor things that companies should know when considering the SP510K. Yes, Madufa fees still apply. So a 510K user fee is a 510K user fee, whether you're talking about traditional, special, or safety and performance-based 510K, which begs the question, John, shouldn't an SP510K be cheaper? Because if it's just a matter of FDA determining that, yes, it meets these set of standards and all they have to do is look at the testing results from the company, that's something that quite literally should be able to be accomplished yeah. within a couple of hours, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, you know, but anyway, you know, it's not like a traditional 510k. And second, the second question is FDA's goal, according to the guidance, is to make a decision within 90 days for the safety and performance based 510k. But once again, shouldn't it be faster? Because all we're doing is we're making sure that it meets these predetermined standards. So I'll leave those two last statements about user fees and review time as sort of rhetorical comments, John, but I think that we can do better than that. Yeah. I mean, you hit on some key points. I mean, the the cost certainly, but definitely seems like the review time. I mean, just for context, what is the review time for a traditional 90 days, but can you re- remind folks what the review time is for a special and a, an abbreviated 510K? You expect me to carry those numbers around? In, in I don't head. know. I just figured. This, this, <laughs> but but my recollection is the special and abbreviated are less than 90 days. I, don't quote me on that. I can double check and verify that. But yeah, it does seem like with uh, the safety and performance that it shouldn't also be 90 days. But that's another topic for probably a completely well, we different could, audience. <laughs> well, we could certainly provide links to the Medufa statistics for our audience. Yeah, for I sure. don't remember those numbers yeah. off the top of my head. But I can tell you this, John, based on my past experience with the abbreviated 510K, sometimes companies will come to me and they'll say, we want to do an abbreviated 510K. And I ask them why, because it's shorter, or they think it's shorter or faster than the traditional 510K. That's not necessarily the case. For example, the checklist in the RTA guidance for 510Ks, the checklist for the abbreviated 510K is actually longer than the checklist for the traditional Mm. 510K. So abbreviated, John, doesn't necessarily mean what you think it might mean. Well, (laughs) yeah. I guess don't always consult a dictionary. All right. So um, next question that that I know you and I talked a little bit about this back in the day. And folks, I'll I'll provide a link to the uh, last podcast that Mike and I did on the safety and performance 510K um, back when, when we did that. But why do you think FDA created this? I mean, to your point, if I'm hearing you correctly, it doesn't it seems substantially equivalent to the abbreviated 510K. So why this new safety and performance pathway? Well, once again, it's a great question, John, and it kind of depends on how you define new. You know, in my opinion, this is not new, and I'm glad you've picked up on my regulatory pun that the safety and performance-based 510K is substantially equivalent to the abbreviated 510K because I would really challenge anybody, including FDA, to point out any 
significant differences between the two. But to answer your question, John, in my opinion, the reason why this was created and Dr. Gottlieb announced shortly before leaving the agency is pure politics, 100% politics. That is, FDA, and this was a couple of years ago, John, they needed to be able to compete with the EU in the sense of the the new MDRs that were going into effect over there. Because in many ways, and this is a topic of another discussion that we've talked about before, in many ways, the EU and the U.S. systems are converging. But in a couple of important ways, they're actually diverging. They're going 180 degrees apart, and this is one of them. As you know, in the past, John, in the EU, they were very keen on making what I call paper substantial equivalence arguments. Now, yes, I understand that the EU doesn't use the phrase substantial equivalence, but the idea, the philosophy is exactly the same. And so they would allow you, they would encourage you to make paper substantial equivalence arguments for a CE market, at least in the past. Now, they're going away from that and they're requiring or they're encouraging rather more of a head-to-head comparison to another device. Whereas here in the U.S., with the formation of this new SP510K, we're going in the opposite direction. The SP510K is to encourage a paper substantial equivalence argument. As I said, John, we're not comparing, we're not testing head-to-head our device to another device. We're comparing, usually on paper, our device to a standard. In other words, if our device meets that standard and all of the other devices also meet that standard, then it stands to reason that our device is substantially equivalent to the other devices. In other words, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. That's the regulatory logic, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. But in, 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 some people might differ, but in my opinion, it's pure politics. And as we both know, John, there's never any re- uh, politics in, in regulation. That couldn't possibly be the case. <laughs> Folks, that's, uh, that's sarcasm. Mike sometimes lays out pretty sick. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> what is... Uh, Thank you, John. I think, I think that was a compliment. I'm no, it sure. is. I, I mean, <laughs> I, my, uh, my favorite forms of, of humor are sarcasm and irony and... And things of that nature. So yeah, I, I, you're you're a little more fluid in it than I am at times, but I picked up on that one. So, um, all right. Some so, people might describe it a little bit differently, but that's yeah. Okay. Well, all right. Well, we'll leave the naysayers out of it for right now. What is the the current status of this new safety and performance 510K? Great question. And that brings us really to the meat of today's conversation, because this is an update of our discussion from the one that we had about a year ago. So recently, FDA finalized a couple of guidances for devices that, uh, you know, well-established devices that now can be used as part of this SP510K program. The two guidances, uh, and we can put links from your website to these for our audience, are for uh, the first one for cutaneous electrodes for used for recording purposes, and the second for conventional Foley catheters. So if you're working either on a cutaneous electrode for recording purposes or a Foley catheter, because these two guidances have been finalized, whatever the heck a final guidance means, John, and as you know, there's no such thing as a final guidance, Mm -hmm. but since these guidances have been finalized, theoretically, a company can use the SP510K right now to get clearance on such a device. But there's a lot of limitations. I mean, you know as well as I do, John, 
these are some of the most, you know, boring medical devices because they've been around for like, you know, a million years. I mean, how long have yeah. we been using cutaneous electrodes for recording and how long have we been using Foley catheters? So, and they're very limited. For example, I have a, a Foley catheter that I'm working on right now, but it has some bells and whistles incorporated into it to make it antimicrobial. That, by definition, does not fit the FB510K. Right. So if you're working on one of these devices, and I don't mean to be, you know, too patronizing to people that are working on, you know, these devices that have been around for, you know, 50 years or more, because they are important devices. But if you're working on these devices, then you should consider the safety and performance based 510K right now. In addition to those two guidances, there are a few draft guidances that have not been finalized. But again, what's the difference between a draft versus a final guidance, John? There really isn't any. The additional draft guidances that FDA is working on in this program are for spinal planning systems, for orthopedic devices that are non-spinal metallic bone screws and washers. If you're working on magnetic resonance coils, MRI coils, and finally, if you're working on a soft or hydrophilic daily wear contact lens. These are all the devices and technologies that FDA is working on these guidances. They're out in draft form. So even though they have not been finalized, if you're working on one of those kinds of devices, you definitely should look at these draft guidances. And I would suggest if you want, you know, be a little proactive and take this to the FDA as a SP 510K, even though those guidances have not been finalized. Yeah. But the most important thing that I would mention in this particular area John, is with all due respect to the lots and lots of people that are that are listening to us in our audience, and some of them are, are are very good, very you know intelligent engineers. If you're working in one of these areas that are very well established, you know cutaneous electrodes or Foley catheters or uh, orthopedic screws or something like that. If you're working in one of these areas and you do not already know what standards apply, what testing needs to be done for your kind of a device, then maybe you shouldn't be working in this area. Because to me, these are not regulatory questions. These are biomedical engineering questions. And it kind of begs the rhetorical question, John, and that is, should we expect FDA to tell us what to do, you know, to tell us what kind of testing to do and so on? Because all of these guidances that I just mentioned, the two, the two that are final and the four that are still in draft form, and I know as an FDA consultant myself, there's others in the works that they have not publicly announced yet. Do we really want or do we really need FDA to be telling us these things? I mean, I'll, I, again, I'll leave that as a rhetorical question, but if you want to chime in, John, please feel free. No, no, it's, it is a, it is a good thought provoking question. And I, I, I don't really have any commentary other than I agree. This is my role as a medical device professional, as a biomedical engineer. I, I should know these things, especially for well established technologies for sure. But, the, you know, Mike, I, I guess I'm a little, you know, scratching my head a little bit because the number of, of product spaces where this new 510K path is, is even an option is, I mean, that's, that's a drop. Uh, if the device, yeah. yeah, it's pretty limited, which raises all sorts of other questions. But I'm curious if you happen to know, putting you on the spot a little bit, but if you happen to know how many products have actually been through the safety and performance 510K pathway, do, do you have any statistics on that? I can't imagine. It's a lot. Hey, everyone. Connor Romaley here from Greenlight Guru. 
Have you ever implemented a paper-based quality system with a customer and just know once the project ends, they're going to struggle maintaining compliance on paper? If so, check out our partner programs page and let's chat about changing the future of quality management. I did check to see, uh, prior to our discussion today, I did check to see the most recent quarterly performance Medufa statistics. And they do not, at least that I was able to find, they do not specifically call out yet the safety and performance-based 510K. They do still refer to the to the abbreviated 510K, yeah. as I mentioned before. And as I said, roughly speaking, that has been about 4% of, of 510Ks in the past. But I can't, unfortunately, give you a specific number for the SB 510K. I can tell you that there are a couple of devices that I've been working on recently that we've considered the SP 510K, and uh, but because of the limitations I mentioned, the Foley catheter that I'm working on that has the antimicrobial features in it, that precludes us from using the SP 510K. Yeah. So, so we, I always consider it. I always, you know, give it to my customers as an option. As a good regulatory professional, I give my customers all of their options, but unfortunately, I can't give you a specific number. All right. So on the surface, I remember when we talked about this about a year or so ago that I was like, oh, wow, this sounds like a really potentially exciting vehicle, if you will, um, uh, for for some products to, to, to work with a, uh, I'll say more, on the surface, it seems like it potentially could be a more streamlined pathway to, to work with FDA. You've highlighted some of the nuances and some of the challenges. And, and today I'm having maybe a different thought. What suggestions do you have about improving the safety and performance 510K? I have a number of suggestions, John. Thanks for asking. And, you know, I have shared these with the FDA as well. But I know, you know, some of my FDA friends listen to our discussions too. So I want to put them out there so we can get more people talking about them. And hopefully, if they make sense, go ahead and implement them. First of all, John, as you alluded to a moment ago, this is a very limited program. It's only applicable now to a very small number of kinds of devices and technologies. And that's kind of unfortunate because that's the way the program has been set up. In other words, we have to wait for FDA to create a guidance, which is nothing more than a set of standards that companies would adhere to 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 use the SP510K. But if we continue to do this, John, this is going to take forever. This is going to take, you know, a million yeah. years. And quite frankly, as I hinted at a moment ago, let me not be, let me not hint, let me say directly, in my opinion, not just as a regulatory consultant, but as a professional biomedical engineer, it's not FDA's job to do this. It's our job to do it. So one of the, one of the metaphors, one of the themes that I operate on, by a lot on, John, is we always got to look for similarities where no similarities seem to exist. And to me, there's a lot of similarities between the safety and performance-based 510K versus the de novo and a very un, uh, little used regulatory pathway to market, and that is the product development protocol or PDP. Mm, oh, yeah. So what are the, the similarities? Well, on the de novo side, as we've talked about before, John, and I suspect some of your audience knows, the result of a de novo, and by the way, a de novo is for a truly new or novel uh, device that's less than class two, so class two or below. 
where there is no predicate. One of the things that results from a successful de novo is a new product code is created, usually with new special controls. Well, these special controls are often standards, right? So it's the same standards that we're talking about with the SP510K. So I would like to see industry take a more proactive approach to using the SP510K. I would like to be able to take any device that I want to the agency and say to them, okay, this is a 510K, but it's, we're not going to do it as a as a traditional or even a special 510K. We're going to do it as a safety and performance-based 510K because we're going to show that it is well-established technology, and we're going to show that these are the special controls, the standards, whatever you want to call them, I don't care, that should be used not just for our device, but for all similar devices in the future. And if FDA buys into that, then they take those list of standards, they put them into a guidance that they want to, and now we have just expanded the program, expanded the number of SP510K devices to be used. So put the burden on industry, not the FDA. Mm-hmm. And the other way that we can, in my opinion, John, greatly improve the efficiency, and I would love to hear your thoughts on some of these suggestions as well, is we can pattern the SP510K as off of the product development protocol or PDP, which I suspect many in our audience probably has never even heard of because it's a very uncommonly used pathway to market. And it is a pathway that I describe in my pathways to market webinar that I did for Greenlight a few yeah. months ago. So maybe it's something, you know, we can provide a link to that webinar as well. But basically the idea of the PDP and the PDP of course is for class three devices, but I'm just using the same regulatory logic to apply to the SP510K here. Basically what we do with the PDP is we agree with the FDA in advance as to how we're going to develop and test the device. And then once FDA buys into that plan, if you will, once we complete the work, then FDA essentially, not essentially, but FDA considers it to be done. In other words, the PMA, because this is a class three universe, the PMA is issued, right? So we could use the same logic here that if we go to the FDA in advance, maybe even create, John, a special safety and performance-based 510K pre-sub, where we go to them, we sell them, here's our plan, here's our testing. FDA says, okay, we buy off on that testing. As soon as you complete your testing and assuming your device passes all that testing, then your 510K is automatically cleared once that testing has become complete, right? So I see no reason why. If we can do this for the PDP in the class three universe, granted, we don't do it very often, but if we can do it for certain kinds of well-established class three devices, why the heck can't we do exactly the same thing for well-established class two or lower devices? Mm-hmm. To me, there's no reason why we should be able to do it for class three, which are higher risk devices as opposed to class two. What are you, Do you have any thoughts on, on any of those recommendations, well, John, the, the comparison to the de novo or to the PDP? Yeah, well, I'll just the last thing when you talked about the product development protocol i mean that that seems like duh that's that's logical right like if if it's used for a, or an an acceptable uh, option for a higher class why wouldn't it be also an acceptable option for for lower class products so that just seems like 
obvious, but I don't know. I just, you know, trying to read all the tea leaves with all these things and, and maybe that's my mistake, but trying to apply logic and rationale to some of these things, um, <laughs> reverting back well, to that's your... Well, that my mistake, John, because I do try <laughs> to apply logic and rationale in the regulatory world all the time. It's not always easy, but I try. Maybe that's oh. the engineer in me. And and just, just to be clear, John, because I don't want people to misunderstand. I don't want anybody to walk away from this saying, this Drew's guy must be a wackadoodle because he's saying that a PDP, which is for class three devices, is the same as a SP510K, which is for class two. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm trying to emphasize that the regulatory logic for the PDP can be applied directly, in my opinion, to the regulatory logic to the SP510K. More specifically, again, to clarify, and anybody that wants to know more about this, they can listen to my um, Pathways to Market webinar. Yeah. The, as I like to describe it, the PDP is essentially, it's a contract. It's a meeting of the mind, so to speak, between the sponsor and the FDA in order to allow them to reach early agreement in order for the company to know what they need to do, in this case, what standards uh, they need to follow to demonstrate the safety and efficacy of their new device. Once you get that agreement, then the manufacturer can move forward at their own pace. And when the PDP, or in this case, the SP510K has been declared completed by FDA, in other words, you tick off all those doc those boxes, then it's considered to have, in the case of a PDP, an approved PMA, or in the case of a class two device, a cleared SP510K. Once again, I see no reason why we can't apply the same regulatory process to, to both types of uh, the device, uh, device uh, classifications. Yeah. And I think that would gra greatly and very quickly expand the universe of devices and technologies that the SP510K would be applicable to. Because as you pointed out a few minutes ago, John, right now it's very limited. Yeah. The other thing that you said a moment ago that triggered a thought and it's in the, the pre-submission area. So, you know, let's imagine I'm a, I'm a device company and, you know, I, I have, I'll just say, with respect to the, the regulatory pathways that are available to me, maybe a fringe case or I, wanna, I, I feel as though I have a strong argument, if you will, for leveraging some of these other vehicles that, that you know, maybe I'm, I'm going to do a pre-submission for a 510k and I want to explore and uncover uh, the potential for something like a leveraging to your point, the product development protocol for my, my product in some way, shape or form. Uh, have you done this before with, with like a pre-submission? And, and if so, I, I guess I'm curious to hear about how that experience went. Well, it's a great question, John. I have not done it specifically for the SP 510k. Because as I said a moment ago, I have considered the SP510K yeah. for several devices, but we haven't taken one to the agency yet because we don't have, I don't have a device right now that fits into these narrow categories. Believe me, I would love to. And when I get to that point, I would absolutely be the first to, uh, to, or, or happy to be the first to knock on FDA's door and say, hey, let's use the PDP and the Denovo as a metaphor for doing this for the SP510K because after all, John, somebody has to be first, right? And that's another, yeah. why not well, you? don't get me started on, <laughs> yeah, why not me? You know, don't get me started on how in this industry, uh, and again, I'm generalizing here. I know this doesn't apply to everybody, but we have so many sheep and we have so few shepherds. We have lots and lots of people seem to be content to, to follow along in other people's footsteps 
rather than being out in the lead and creating the the path themselves. But one thing to remember, John, I use this in some of my present presentations. If you're following in somebody else's footsteps, there's one thing I can guarantee, and that is you'll never go anywhere new. So mm-hmm. something to think about. Mm-hmm. I like that. What else do you think is important about the safety and performance 510K that we haven't covered so far? Well, I think we did talk about it a little bit, but I think, you know, perhaps most important is, and and, and to a certain extent, I'll offer this as a rhetorical question, but do we want, do we need more and more of these device-specific guidances? The guidance list that I mentioned a moment ago for the SP510K. Each of these guidances, as you pointed out as well, John, is focusing on a very, very narrow niche, uh, a specific type of device or technology. Well, what does that mean for the future? Does that mean that we're going to have, you know, 500,000 different guidances that are going to apply to each kind of medical device that you can possibly imagine? In my opinion, John, that's nuts. Some people would probably advocate that, but I think that's I think that's nuts. And I've noticed not just with the SP510K, John, but uh, there's been a, tr- uh, a trend across the board, more and more very specific guidances coming out of the FDA, uh, focusing on specific devices, focusing on specific materials, focusing, focusing on specific diseases. You know, in the past, John, you, you know, I, I've, I'm getting older and you, you are a little bit too, not as much. You know, back in the day, we didn't have nearly these kinds of regulations. Yeah. We didn't have these kinds of, uh, you, you know, I, I, I use a metaphor that you're very familiar with, John, and we've talked about this many times, the design control guidance from mm-hmm. 1997. That doesn't apply to any one specific device or technology or disease. That applies across the board. Right. We talked, I think, uh, a while ago, you know, our, our, our audience, I'm sure by now knows that I happen to be a SME for, for, for um, FDA in a few different areas, one of them being biomaterials and biocompatibility. FDA shared with me before they publicly uh, released it, one of the new material guidances, this particular one on, on nitinol, and they wanted my comments. They wanted other people's comments as well, but they wanted mine. And I basically said to them, look, you can issue this guidance. This was about maybe a year or a year and a half ago. Said you can issue this guidance, uh, but there's nothing in this guidance that wasn't that isn't already in my biomaterials textbook as a graduate student 30 yeah. odd years ago. Right. And, I, and they said, "Yeah, Mike, you're right. We agree, but there's a lot of people that don't know that. So uh, yeah, that's the problem. That's the problem. You know. So again, well. I'll leave it as a rhetorical question. But do we want? Do we need FDA?" spending their variable valuable time and resources and quite frankly our taxpayer money you know uh putting together these very very specific kinds of guidances now one last thing and i'll be happy to let you chime in on this john if there's specific reason for it for example in certain categories where there have been problems with devices Silicone breast implants, you know, uh, things like that, duodenoscopes, hernia meshes. Then, you know, I that goes without standing. You know, FDA and industry has to work together to try to prevent those problems from occurring, uh, you know, in the future. And if it takes more specific guidance to prevent those problems, even though personally I don't think it's necessary, then either. But if it takes that guidance to do it, then I'm, you know, by all means for it. But as a general rule, and again, 
maybe some people might disagree with me, John, but do we want or need FDA putting out more and more device-specific, technology-specific, material-specific, disease-specific guidances? Because at least in my view, John, this is a trend that I've been seeing more and more over the last several years. What are your thoughts? Uh, a couple of things. You know, to, to that last point, you know, I, I, I tend to agree. I mean, if if I, and I'm paraphrasing a great deal, this is John Spears' definition of what FDA and specifically CDRH, their objective or mission as an agency is to protect and, and promote the health of U.S. citizens with respect to medical device technologies. If that is, in fact, the mission of the agency, then, yeah, I think guidance on products where there have been some some known industry issues, that's a good use of their time. But to your point, I mean, I just looked at this Foley catheter guidance and, you know, again, no disrespect to anybody developing Foley catheters. There's obviously a need for this technology. It's been around for decades and decades and decades. And, and you know, so there is an opportunity, you know, there is benefit to this product. But when you read this guidance, man, it is, it is super specific. And there's not, you know, a lot of gray area and wiggle room and things like that. And I think this is sort of the, the, the strange dichotomy that, that sadly, a, a lot of medical de- device professionals, I think, are stuck in. I think a lot of medical device professionals want to be told what to do. And I know that's a huge pet peeve of yours. It is It is also a similar pet peeve of mine that careful what we wish for as an, as an industry. If, <laughs> if we want more guidance from FDA, they will tell you exactly what to do and when to do it and how to do it, which, is, you know, anyway, yeah, those are my reactions. <laughs> But before we wrap this up, John, because we do, you know, we are coming towards the end here. I'm curious as to your thoughts. You know, we do have these guidances now for the Foley catheters and the other ones that I mentioned. So shouldn't the process be essentially more like a CE mark in that regard? In other words, almost a self-certification. If you tick all of those boxes in the Foley guidance or in the... Uh, surface electrode guidance or whatever, and you submit that to the FDA, and FDA says, "Yeah, you, you here's all your test results. You passed all these tests. You know, go and and you know sell your product and improve patients' lives and make the world a better place." I mean, shouldn't it be as simple as that? Otherwise, what's the point of this program? It certainly seems like it should be. I mean, it, especially as specific and and detailed as the the guidance. I, I didn't look at the cutaneous one, and I haven't looked at the the draft guidances for the other products spaces that you mentioned. But for this Foley catheter one, it is super specific. And I, if I, as long as I can demonstrate that, yeah, it seems like a self certify opportunity for sure. I totally agree. Great point. Well, Mike, um, anything else before we wrap up today? So just a couple of very quick final thoughts, John, and some of these apply to what we talked about today, but others are just, you know, applicable across the board. First of all, know what all your options are in terms of your pathways to market. Don't just say, you know, think of a a 510K in a ubiquitous sense, because there are multiple subtypes, subcategories of the 510K, as I briefly described uh, at the beginning of our discussion today. And we've done podcasts, you know, John and myself on these. I've done webinars with Greenlight specifically on the 510K. And so there's a lot of resources, a lot of information out there on that. Know all of your different options. Specifically, when it comes to the SP510K, which is what we've been focusing on today, obviously use this program if it's applicable to you, if you fit into one of those uh, device 
types or technologies that, that I mentioned earlier and use it as a sanity check to make sure that you're ticking, even though, John, I know you and I both don't like this tick box mentality, but even though you're ticking all those standards, you know, we meet all of these standards. And by the way, John, don't consider any guidance, including these final guidances as, as uh, necessarily the complete story, because there might yeah. be some testing that you need to do for your particular device that's not in the standard, or sorry, that's not in the guidance. And that brings me to my last recommendation, John, and that is regardless of your pathway, whether it's the safety and performance-based 510K or any other 510K or any non-510K pathway, please communicate with the agency early before you take your your submission sure. to the FDA in the form of a pre-submission meeting or a pre-sub or some other way. I don't care how you communicate with them as long as you communicate with them and make sure that you come to what my attorney friends like to call a meeting of the mind <laughs> in terms of you know whether or not your technology applies to the special, sorry, I keep saying special, to the safety and performance-based 510K, whether in this case the testing matrix would be complete. You know, this is in fact the list of standards because I can envision, John, a scenario, I'm not sure if this has happened yet, where a company is working on one of these Foley catheters, for example. But because there's some subtle nuance in their technology that's a little bit different, Maybe there's a standard that's applicable that's not covered in the guidance. And so, therefore, if the company were to go directly and submit the SP510K, it would be rejected by FDA because they would say, yes, you've met all the standards in the guidance. However, because of this subtle difference in your technology, maybe there's another test or another standard that might be applicable as well. Right. That's a very easy kind of a problem to, to mitigate, if not completely eliminate by taking it to the agency in advance, as I said, in the form of a pre-submission meeting or something else. And John, you and I have talked many, many times on pre-subs and we've done podcasts and mm -hmm. webinars on that topic as well. So there's really no excuse for folks in our industry to have these kinds of problems because there's there's just so many resources out there to help. Yeah, Those absolutely. are some of my thoughts. John, what do you think? Any other Anything else that would be important for our audience to remember as we wrap this up? Well, well, if I ever, I, I know if I ever uh, dive into the world of design and development and, and have an interest in bringing a new product to market, I know the, the first person I'm calling and, and calling early <laughs> in the process is Mike Drews because, you know, you know, and I, I, I'll give you a, hopefully what you perceive as a compliment, but I, I love, um, <laughs> I love when you and I talk because, you know, you, you don't think about, you know, regulatory in a standard conventional approach. You think about it from a fresh perspective. And I, I have to imagine that every single um, device that you work on, you know, you don't, necessarily revert back to, you know, we did this for this product and it was very similar. You're looking at it, you know, it's somewhat uniquely on a, on a per product uh, basis. And I think that's a really, it's a unique approach. I don't think a lot of regulatory professionals do this. So I want to applaud you for that. So. Um, well, thank you, John. I do, I, I do not advocate what uh, uh, the what's substantially equivalent to what you just said. I do yeah. not advocate what I call the cookie cutter approach, <laughs> you know, where every medical device is the same. As a biomedical engineer, that's not true. Every medical device is different. It might be similar to other devices, but it's different. Um, and 
I must add, John, as we wrap this up, I, I, I get a little nervous when somebody preferences this as something, you know, <laughs> well, I'm going to give you a compliment, but, you know, and I hope it's perceived as a compliment. That's, uh, but anyway, that's very kind of you to say. Yeah, absolutely. Folks, my, my advice to you is, is reach out to Mike, uh, Vascular Sciences, Mike Drews, um, you know, he's done countless podcasts with us at Greenline and webinars, a lot of information. I'll share a couple of those links to, to things that, that um, we've done in the past with, with Mike, but you know, he's, he's the best uh, in my opinion, regulatory professional in this industry right now. So you should reach out to him. Uh, he can certainly help you figure out a creative and legitimate uh, pathway that makes the most sense for your product and technology. So certainly I encourage you to do so. And I'm going to remind folks too that, you know, of course, Greenlight Guru, we're here to help you as well. We have the only medical device quality management system software solution on the market today. It was a solution that's designed specifically and only for the medical device industry. And it's been designed by actual medical device professionals, people like myself and our other gurus that are on staff at Greenlight Guru. So uh, reach out to us. Go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. Uh, we have workflows to help you with your design and development activities, assessing risk, and managing your documents and records, as well as all the post-market quality events, CAPAs, complaints. It's all in one source. And um, uh, you know, just like I said, would encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru. Lastly, to, to wrap things up today, I want to thank you all for being uh, listeners of the Global Medical Device Podcast, uh, you, you know, frankly, I've lost count of how many episodes. Uh, I think we're uh, we'll quickly be approaching the 200 episode mark, probably before the end of the year, or, or certainly they're close to it. So, uh, uh, appreciate all of you uh, for listening and continuing to keep this as the number one podcast in the medical device industry. As always, this is your host and founder of Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.